Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. The state's election commission tosses out challenges targeting private grants used during the 2020 election. Plus, a top Republican in Wisconsin has some conflicting views on unfounded claims the election was stolen. And Wisconsin hospitals are entering a crisis as COVID-19 infections rise. We'll tell you what the governor is doing to help. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for December 10th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And we have some developments over these private election grants that Republicans mm -hmm. have been questioning for months now about how they were used and how they were issued to multiple municipalities during the 2020 election. They were, of course, geared to help local clerks run their elections uh, during the pandemic. So the Wisconsin Elections Commission, we're going to have some developments. There's going to be a timeline here to keep our audience in place. It's never easy, the Elections Commission, is it, Emily? It's, it's, it's never easy. But we're going to start from the beginning okay. of the week when the Wisconsin Elections Commission threw out challenges to these private grants issued to municipalities. At issue is $8.8 million in grants from the Center for Tech and Civic Life distributed to Wisconsin's five largest cities. Now, the ruling uh, from what the attorney said in their letter after tossing this out is that the commission finds that the complaint does not raise probable cause to believe that a violation of law or abuse of discretion has occurred. All claims are hereby dismissed. Now this is where we get to the twists and turns, right? We had some developments as of today that you have reported on. So now the commission has appointed an outside counsel to review these complaints because now it involves the administrator, Megan Wolf. Yes, yeah, so how this process works out is because there was uh, elections official, commission official involved, they got outside counsel. So if you go back and look at the letter, it's an outside counsel making a recommendation. On the process that it works, the commission gets this letter and then has seven days to review the letter and request a meeting on the complaint. Then they can vote on the complaint. It takes at least two members of the commission to request this meeting, right? The week expired without a request for a meeting. Therefore, the ruling from the outside counsel stood. After it expired, uh, two Republican commissioners, Bob Spindell and Dean Knutson, said, oh, wait, we missed the email. Spindell told, told the Journal Sentinel, that he's not okay with the, this, this letter saying these grants are okay. I talked to Knutson this morning. He had wanted a, a hearing, but he says, look, if we try to have a hearing, it would only delay the process for the plaintiffs to go to appeal this decision. But he really wants discussion about should there be legislation on the use of private money to cover public costs for the election? Because you look at the complaint that was filed by these conservative groups, they requested several things. One, a referral to other uh, law enforcement for a further investigation. Another was a recommendation for the commission to recommend the legislature to address this through legislation. Mm -hmm. He wants to still talk about that. A twist to all this is that Ann Jacobs, the Democratic chair of the commission, says, look, the week passed. They had a chance to ask for the hearing. You can't unring that bell. In her words, she's like, even if you could, you would need four votes on a commission split 3-3 to overrule the recommendation. And oh, by the way, the longer you take, the more you're eating into that clock that's ticking for the groups to file the appeal. So I know it's really a long, twisting road. The bottom line is the commission's ruling is in place. Well, the commission ruling via the outside counsel is in place. The complaints are dismissed, and now Cardall is going to go to court in the five communities, right, where they get these grants. Green Bay, 
Kenosha, Madison, Milwaukee, and Racine. Those five counties will get appeals. He's also going to file a new round of complaints arguing that these grants violate the bribery law in Wisconsin, which says you cannot accept anything of value to vote. Now, he previewed this argument during a hearing before the assembly this week when he testified for the elections ca campaign and elections committee about issues with all kinds of things that are being raised about the election and kind of laid out like what he's going to say in this complaint. And JR, you never tossed to the video, <laughs> but you teed that up so perfectly for me. So Thank let's, you. like you just mentioned, Eric Cardell did testify in front of the Assembly Elections Commission. Let's hear from him and uh, the chair, uh, branch, uh, Representative Branchin as well. No case law um, uh, precedents are under the election bribery statutes exist for a Wisconsin state voting plan. So, um, you know, and I, I think that's what we heard from WAC, that they really didn't have any statutes to deal with the fact that people took money first before they applied for a grant. But aren't you really giving people money then to accept the grant process, which nobody was turned down in the grant process to get money? I think that most people, like when they hear that, you know, cash is given to the government. Uh, they, they kind of think it's strange, but it's okay, particularly if it's going to like a park or a building or a library or something. And so one of the, I, I think, uh, ways the Wisconsin Voters Alliance is trying to reposition itself and, and communicate is, is just about, you know, should our election officials uh, be impartial? Should they be unbiased? CTCL, as you may recall, uh, gave uh, $4 million uh, to Fulton County, Georgia, for the U.S. Senate races in January 2021. And so the idea of the CTCL or similar groups uh, coming to Wisconsin and offering similar uh, voting plans, um, even with the SAFE or without the SAFE, I mean, I think it's going to happen. Why did our predecessor legislators take something that usually is generally applicable bribery and make a special statute for election bribery? And I think it was because they were concerned about election integrity. They were concerned about election officials being impartial and unbiased. Uh, and just to recap for our audience, Cardell is the attorney of the conservative Wisconsin Voters Alliance and the Thomas More Society. And like you just mentioned, his group is going to appeal. Um, and they have this new kind of new round of complaints that you also mentioned. Uh, so I guess what's the timeline here? Is it still just unknown or how what is the deadline for, for them to do this by? 30 days from the commission decision being issued. So I think it was. It counts as Thursday is the first day. Thirty days from that, so by the end of January, have to file or mid middle of January, have to file the appeals. So those are moving forward. Also, have to mention that this all goes back to the heart of the Gableman investigation, mm -hmm. right? It's all about these that. grants. Mm -hmm. So there's that that layer there. And oh, by the way, Eric Cardall, the Thomas More Society has an office sharing agreement with. Gableman's investigation and his office. Yep, and we have talked several times on this show specifically about these grants because Republicans have been target them, targeting them from the beginning, it seems. Um, speaking of elections, uh, I want to highlight uh, some comments from Speaker Voss. I interviewed him this week just talking about his beliefs um, in conspiracy theories. Now, when I talked to him about this, it was in regards to Gableman revealing some staffers um, on his investigation, right? It was for the first time last week. Mm -hmm. Everything's <laughs> Last week, Gableman testified in front of the Assembly Elections Commission, named a lot of staffers, and among them, some are conspiracy theorists and others have really close ties to President Trump. So I basically asked him, "Is it a, does he 
think it's appropriate to have these people on the staff uh, and should the public trust this investigation? He goes to on to say that, well, he doesn't really think conspiracy theories are real. Um, he said when I asked him in a follow-up question, well, do you believe claims the election is stolen is not a conspiracy theory? And he doesn't think so. Um, so this kind of just goes to the fact where Voss has said multiple times, yes, President Biden is, yes, President Biden is the president, but he still is trying to, in a sense, appease President Trump and not get on his bad side, right? The last time he, he said something to not, um, I guess, not a conspiracy theory, but the last time he tried to, I guess, um, to say that the election was fair and, and et cetera, you know, President Trump gave him a phone call and then he was on a plane with him and had to cozy up with him again. So in a sense, it just seems that he's, he's trying to um, not, not even debunk these things, um, even though he says... Joe Biden's president, but he doesn't believe that conspiracy theories and unproven and false claims the election was stolen um, is considered one. Republicans have a challenge where there's a segment of their base, we've talked before, believes that the election was stolen and rigged. They're not going to be persuaded otherwise. They're putting pressure on Republicans to try and do something about it. Republicans then go, look, there's a significant segment of the population doesn't believe the election was fair, but the people feeding into that perception are people like Donald Trump who keep raising false allegations. For example, after the uh, elections and campaign elections hearing this week, right, Trump's PAC tweeted out or sent out this statement about, look, there are these always people who are uh, registered for more than 100 years in Wisconsin. That mm -hmm. bombshell from this, this hearing that we heard in Wisconsin, more as a fraud. That's not true. Uh, what happened was as they merged these new systems into the new one, these old systems into the new one years ago, they had these default numbers that were put in there to keep the records in the system. There's nothing fishy about it. It looks weird. And because it looks weird, it gives you fodder for a conspiracy theory to say there's something wrong, but it's not. There's a, a rational explanation for why that is there. But again, for those folks who believe the election was stolen, you can't, can't placate him at this point. And Speaker Ross also defended those on Gableman staff, saying that that's what I want. I want people questioning the election, doing their research, and maybe coming to a conclusion. So he doesn't seem, you know, to have any problems, even though Democrats have raised a lot of red flags um, of the staffers that Gableman is, uh, who is helping him with this investigation. I spoke to Senator John Erpenbach, which we're also going to highlight later in the show because he says he's not going to run for re-election. But he slammed Voss's comments, saying just, you know, Republicans need to stop it. You know, now is the time to stop, uh, to stand up and say that the election was safe and secure. But as you and I both know, Jr., um, it's very unlikely we're going to see a lot of Republicans just, you know, stop spreading uh, mm -hmm. false uh, conspiracy theories about the election. Um, let's stay on the topic of elections because it seems like we, it's <laughs> what we talk a lot about on this show, right? Um, our next topic is going to be the nonpartisan legislative audit bureau uh, did uh, an update, and this is specifically um, about the city of Madison. So they updated the report on the 2020 election after they were physically able to handle and review Madison ballots and documents through the subpoena issued by the state Senate. Now, overall, concluded that Madison's management of the 2020 election was accurate and pre-election checks on things like voting equipment was handled property, properly. Excuse me. Uh, Madison Mayor Satya Rose Conway said the review showed Madison's performance exceeded statewide averages for other municipalities. I'm going to read a quote from her. Despite repeated attempts to find
voting problems, it's once again clear the Madison clerk's office runs a safe and fair election. In fact, the numbers for Madison actually reflected performance exceeding the statewide averages for other municipalities. And I believe, you know, I took some of these directly from uh, your story, JR, and you talked to uh, Madison Mayor Rhodes Conway. So it's kind of, in a sense, maybe a sigh of relief here for the city of Madison that they were able to, to get this kind of corrected in the audit. Well, it also raises the question, why did you hold back the records in the first place? I mean, the true. conclusion was you do things better than most people. So, for example, you're supposed to do a test within 10 days of an election of your electronic voting equipment to make sure it's working properly. And looking at other communities around the state, the ones that were checked, about half of them were done within that 10-day window. The others were done 10 to 22 days before the election, which you're not supposed to do for timing purposes. All of Madison's were done within 10 days. They checked 551 absentee ballot envelope certificates. There wasn't any missing information from any of them, right? 100% compliance on those. They found three ballots where information was corrected, uh, ballot certificates where information was corrected. All, again, better marks than everybody else. So why hold back? Again, the argument from the city was we don't, we're following this guidance from the Department of Justice that says you have to maintain chain of custody with these records. They're being super safe about it. Some would say overly cautious, and their argument was you can't have these physically touch them because we're worried about this. For Republicans, this is kind of basically just proving the point that we have access to this information. You have to work with the Logic Auto Bureau. When LAB comes, you open the door. Mm-hmm. That's where they wanted to do this. And, you know, there's also a political thing now that Republicans will go back to their Lincoln Day dinners and say, look, those guys in Madison we hold them accountable. Yep, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't back down. So there's that political piece to it as well. You know, th- when I read your story on this as well, um, what what made me think about this is also you know WEC WEC excuse me has been trying to have auditors correct their audit as well when it comes to they say there were several errors when it comes to uh, the voting rolls and the ERIC system. Do you think they're ever going to get a chance uh, to get I, those corrections? I don't know. You're going to see LAB back down from its conclusions, mm-hmm. and I don't know Republicans are going to push them on that issue. And they they control both houses, so I don't know. It's interesting that even Dean Knutson, who's a former GOP lawmaker, really took the audit bureau to task during the election mm-hmm. commission meeting last week. I really don't see that very often from current or past lawmakers to badmouth anything about the audit bureau. Mm-hmm. So very rare. Uh, this week we also had the conservative law firm Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. They said they conducted their own review of the 2020 election. It was conducted over a 10-month period. I think the biggest headline there is that there was no evidence. Uh, the report, excuse me, found no evidence of widespread voter, voter fraud during the election. Um, some other highlights is that they showed or the report revealed the voting machines worked properly. They found limited instances in which ineligible voters tried to cast a ballot. And they took issues with the state's voter rolls. Now, that's nothing new. Will has, uh, you know, supported legal challenges looking into the voter rolls. They also raised questions about how private grants were used. Of course, we started the mm-hmm. show talking about this. This is nothing new. Um, I did talk to Rick Essenberg, uh, the general counsel and president of Will. Here's what he had to say about those election grants. If we're going to allow private parties to fund our elections, which I'm not entirely sure we should at all, that we have a mechanism to make sure the distribution of that money is even-handed. Now, he's referencing, of course, they went to the five largest cities, but there were other Republican districts that still got some money, maybe not as much as Madison, mm-hmm. Milwaukee, Green Bay, etc. But here we are again. 
Will is trying to bring up issues that are nothing new to us reporters. We've heard these a lot of times. Was there anything in that report, I guess, that you know stuck out to you besides some of the same headlines that we've been seeing for a uh, while? A couple of notes of caution. I mean, Will's got a lawsuit, for example, pending right now over drop boxes, arguing they're not allowed under state law. Mm-hmm. So in the report, they conclude that the ballots cast via drop boxes weren't properly cast. That's in dispute, right? Um, they sued about the voter roll, like you mentioned. So their their activists are shading their report. There's some nuance also in how their conclusion. A lot of people seized on there was no widespread fraud, which is definitely a conclusion. Those who think the election, there's something wrong, seized on the will conclusion that there were ballots that weren't cast properly. But they also are saying, even though they weren't cast properly, again, via abs- uh, drop boxes or people who claim indefinitely confined, as we may have been indefinitely confined, they're saying that people ne- didn't necessarily intentionally commit fraud. So if you went to Democracy in the Park, for example, in Madison, where they collected ballots at parks on two different weekends, you followed guidance from your local election official. You had good intentions as the voter. So the administration may have been off, but the voter wasn't trying to be fraudulent. So that's kind of the nuance of what they're saying, that there may have been more votes cast improperly than Biden's margin of victory, but that doesn't mean Biden didn't win, if Mm -hmm. you get that nuance. Right. Another thing to keep in mind here is, Let's add all this up we talked about so far. Gablin's got his probe going on so far, right? We have the Elections Commission I just ruling. wrote that down. I'm like, are we going to name all the ones we've seen? The <laughs> Elections Commission has said those private grants are not illegal. Right. A federal judge in September of 2020 ruled those grants are not illegal. The Elections Commission, in a separate complaint last August, I believe it was, said those grants are not illegal. Those grants are the heart of Gablin's probe. Will has now come out with an investigation saying there was no widespread fraud in the 2020 election. The Audit Bureau has completed basically its work, right, on 2020, saying there are issues with the administration, we have recommendations for changes, but there's no widespread fraud. It raises the question, what's left for Gablin to do or to prove? Now, if you listen to him testify last week, he's drawing this line from a guy who worked, I think, for Obama, wrote a book saying that 2020 is all about turnout in urban areas, like hand-to-hand combat in the streets, essentially. I'm paraphrasing there. Mm -hmm. That guy went to work for Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Herbert wrote this big check to fund these private grants, that there's some kind of line there that proves a conspiracy to turn those grants into a Democratic turnout operation. Um, I don't know that he's going to get very far with that with Democrats, at least, but there is a receptive audience from some Republicans who think these grants were proper. And as I maintained all along, there should be an adult conversation about private money covering public election costs. We're just not having that in Wisconsin right now. No, right? there's so much gridlock between Republicans and the governor, and they have, you know, tried to pass legislation looking into, you know, let's change the laws, let's not allow this, or let's just have a, like you said, an adult conversation. Because, you know, some side conversations I do have with Democrats, they do think that this should be looked into. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should, you know, have a little bit more oversight so we don't have this big debacle again about private grants. And it raises the question, like I just read from Rick Essenberg, that. Should elections be taking private grant money? And if if it should, it should be equally dispersed so no one's questioning how it was used and where right. it was used. And Democrats, though, they seem hesitant to uh, give an inch for fewer Republicans will take a mile, right? That if they admit maybe we should have oversight of this private money, Republicans will say, aha, even they say there's something wrong with what happened last year. So again, we're not having that conversation. But with Gableman, what's left, right? Yeah. So he's going to have this, he's going to focus on the grants. He's going to focus on uh, what happened in nursing homes, at least his investigation of that. And then what? Republicans just wanted to wrap it up. They want it to be done. They want to take that and go look at the Audit Bureau, look at Will, all this stuff. 
Here are issues. Here's our new round of bills in January. They have fingers crossed for that. I have my doubts about it. Mm -hmm. um, here's our new round of bills. Let's get them passed. The governor's desk. He probably vetoes them, and we go on to 2022. But with these coming hearings, December 22nd is a hearing about the writs he's issued trying to force these mayors of Green Bay Madison to comply with his um, subpoenas or face being jailed by the Waukesha County Sheriff. The next day, the 23rd, is going to be the hearing on Josh Call's motion to quash the subpoenas to the Elections Commission Minister Megan Wolf. He won't even get to talk to those guys until after the holidays. So what's his timeline to and wrap it up? I was just going to say, when is this timeline? Like we're all, and when is it going to end? Right? We just we just don't know. Do the Republicans wait for that to be done for the craft their bills, or they draft them anyway and just say, okay, let's we know what's going is, on. This is hope. <laughs> yeah, let's I, hope this is what we want it to look like. So if the calendar for the spring wraps up in mid March, I believe. Traditionally, the assembly gets done way earlier than that. They want to get out of town and go start campaigning. Go campaigning. Mm -hmm. So the clock is ticking to have them pass more bills that address the things that are being brought up in these investigations. And so they can go on the campaign trail and say, yes, we proposed these bills, we passed these bills, and Governor Evers vetoed them. Um, also want to touch on the Omicron variants. As we didn't get to it last week, and since last week, state health officials have now identified three cases. Now, the Omicron is this new variant um, that developed first in South African countries, and now it's kind of making its way. Health officials warned that it's very likely it's going to be here. We are hearing from some experts, though, that they don't think as of right now it's as um, uh, not dangerous as what's the word I'm looking for? Blanking <laughs> uh, well, on this word. More contagious, contagious not as severe, not as, severe yes. as the Delta variant, which state health officials told us this week, Delta is still the main dominant that is really starting to overwhelm our hospitals. And, you know, it's starting to get nerve-wracking here in Wisconsin again as we're reaching levels we haven't seen when it comes to hospitalizations. We reached an all-new high. So during their briefing this week, state health officials are now saying they plan to seek federal help um, to staff hospitals and nursing homes that are strained right now by COVID-19. And Governor Tony Evers is asking the Biden administration to send 100 federal workers um, to Wisconsin and likely going to utilize the National Guard. And it's kind of funny looking back right around. I saw some uh, I have tweets that will show me what I tweeted exactly a year ago. This is around the exact same time when, you know, the discussions of the field hospital and mm -hmm. all of this were happening again. Evers kind of took a hands-off approach. We're not there yet, but it seems like deja vu almost. Before we kind of talk about this and maybe the politics um, that we'll get to, let's hear from some state health officials and Governor Evers weighing in on uh, what's going on in Wisconsin right now. All 72 counties in Wisconsin are experiencing high community transmission. Counties are seeing record COVID-19 hospitalizations for the year. And many of our healthcare systems, from our largest to our smallest, are reaching capacity. We are working with Wisconsin's Department of Military Affairs and Wisconsin Emergency Management and Wisconsin's hospitals to request medical reserve teams from FEMA. These teams will be dispersed around the state and will add important capacity, especially in intensive care units. The bottom line is that we will continue to make every effort to make sure our hospitals, nursing homes, and assisted living providers have what they need to care for all of us. In order to do this successfully, we must prevent further strain on Wisconsin's health and long-term care providers 
And we cannot do this without you. As of this morning, I've heard about three additional confirmed Omicron cases. We are in the process of investigating all of these cases to notify people who are exposed. We're using the same contact tracing skills that we've developed for the, over, the, over the past two years at the local level to reach out to these cases. Um, not all of the cases are going to be people who had travel history, so that implications of that are that there's a low level of the Omicron virus spreading in, in, the, in communities in Wisconsin. But the important point that I think we mentioned earlier is that 99, greater than 99% of the virus circulating is the Delta variant. Main message from health officials, um, get vaccinated. If you haven't got vaccinated, go do it and get your booster. Um, they're also recommending 16-year-olds to go get boosted as well because it seems a lot of people, even if you're fully vaccinated and you haven't gotten your booster, they're getting sick now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they're telling people to do. One other quick thing, since we're talking about COVID, I just want to mention behind the politics again, um, Senator Ron Johnson is making uh, more headlines. You know, he was kicked off of YouTube not too long ago for COVID-19 myths. He said something this week along the lines that um, mouthwash will kill COVID-19. St- uh, health experts are kind of debunking those conspiracy theories. Ron Johnson uh, yesterday said, well, I'm, you know, that people are taking me out of context. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to say to warn people, stay healthy, eat right, exercise. Those are the best ways. But, you know, what he said was, you know, it well, would kill, you know, along the lines, leading people uh, in misinformation. You and know. he's trying to say that there's a study going on right now about viral load and, and whether mouthwash kills the viral load. Yes, uh, Ron Johnson's staff is constantly cleaning up his comments or trying to explain what he's saying about COVID-19. And he maintains all along, I'm just raising questions. Mm-hmm. They're being way too aggressive and trying to push the, co- the vaccine on you. It's not as safe as they say or as effective. And you should be looking at other things. They've miscalculated COVID. Um, Dr. Fauci overhyped COVID like he did AIDS in the 80s. I mean, he's made a series of comments. The question is, anybody going to care? next fall? Will it be a major issue for him? Will it be something that people remember? Mm-hmm. We did see some stuff in the Marquette poll that people trust Tony Evers more than Ron Johnson for when information COVID. on COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, but is that a driving issue for people next fall? I, I don't know. And again, Johnson hasn't said he's going to run yet. Right. But something to keep in mind about the election is going to be about COVID in 2022. And I think some people are just tuning it out. They yeah. don't even want to touch it at all. Um, we're going to do a quick update before we get to stock picks um, about Milwaukee District Attorney John Chisholm. Uh, Republicans on Monday sent a letter to Governor Evers asking him, hey, remove him. Um, all of this uh, comes after Chisholm's office recommended $1,000 bail for Daryl Brooks, who is the man who allegedly tried to run down um, or drove uh, his SUV through the Waukesha Christmas Parade. It was before that that uh, on a separate charge, uh, Chisholm's office recommended that low bail. So what they're asking the governor, though, it's kind of unique, though, because the governor can only remove a district attorney if a local taxpayer from that area brings forth a written complaint about the individual. I spoke to Representative Cindy Duco about this, and she basically told me, well, yeah, we know there's no formal complaint, but we're hoping this gets out to the public and this will, you know, result in someone filing a complaint. Um, Her quote was, you know, he should man up. He made a mistake. His policies have cost six lives. He needs to be held accountable. Let's hear from Governor Evers defending that. Hey, I can't do anything yet, and my office has not seen a formal complaint yet. There's a process that we follow. I mean, it's just like any other DA that we may have 
removed or considered it in the past uh, once we receive a complaint uh, from someone from that county we start the process i get a letter from somebody from the county requesting that process be initiated i will initiate it and also something to mention too in order to file that complaint you need some money up front to do it also right a thousand dollar bond so that might dissuade some people from wanting to pony up the money to file their complaint. So we'll see if a complaint is actually filed. Uh, we're going to move on to uh, stock picks. This week, uh, we had some new people entering the race for the lieutenant governor's race, and you're kind of focusing on the Republicans uh, specifically for rising this week. We're up to seven. There's yeah. an old joke about the vice presidency. It wasn't worth a warm bucket of. Um, and the governor's office in Wisconsin hasn't been very active pre-Rebecca Clayfish. Um, a lot of jokes about that in Wisconsin politics, but suddenly everybody wants to be lieutenant governor. Right. They've got three Democrats and seven Republicans. Now, the GOP field right now, um, it's really kind of a two-person race. So Pat Teston, state senator from Stevens Point, he's raised money. He's run competitive campaigns. He pulled the surprise in 2016, beating right. then-Senator Julie Lassa. He's obviously a top-tier candidate. The question is, who could break into that top tier with him? Ben Volkel is a former aide to Ron Johnson. Um, he's got some connections. He could possibly get there, but people want to see his finance report in January to make sure he belongs there. The other candidates, and no offense to them, but they're not proven yet. We don't really know a whole lot about them. Either they're like David King, a pastor from Milwaukee who's run for office every so many years and had much success, or Cindy Werner of Milwaukee who ran for the 4th Congressional District in 2020, lost the not GOP nomination that, that primary. They haven't proven yet that they're really serious contenders. These two guys are most likely ones, but Ben's got to prove he belongs there. The one advantage Ben has over Pat is that Ben lives in southeastern Wisconsin. Talk radio is a big deal in Republican primaries, and a lot of votes come out of southeastern Wisconsin. So he doesn't have to drive two and a half hours to go see those voters that are right in his backyard. So just something to watch as that, that develops. And it's sometimes unlikely that we get two retirement announcements in one <laughs> week. Um, but for Democrats, this is kind of a big loss. They're losing uh, Senator John Erpenbach because he's been in politics. He's been here since Act 10, um, longtime uh, Democrat, serves on the Joint Finance Committee. And on top of that, we're hearing from a Republican representative, Thiesfeld, also said he's not seeking re-election. So how many will follow in their footsteps is kind of, you know, raising eyebrows. Oh. Who, who's next, right? Excellent question. <laughs> so Gary Talkin uh, from Bond up in Bondowell, he announced in January, he was gonna, this is his last term, so we got three right now. We know Amy Loudenbeck is going to run for Secretary of State. Samantha Kirkman is going to run for um, Kenosha County Executive. But we're nowhere near where we were last year, uh, two years ago. Two years, two years ago, ago, quite a lot. There yeah. were 20, reti- 20 people announced by the middle of 2020. They were not going to seek the same office they held at the beginning of the term. Now, they left, like Tom Tiffany, mm-hmm. won a special election for Congress, and he left. It became 21 when Scott Fitzgerald won seat in Congress and he resigned early. That's not counting the people who lost re-election bids and that kind of thing. So we're nowhere near that yet. The question is, who else? I mean, my watch list, I mean, uh, in the Senate alone, Janet Bewley, the major- minority leader, she doesn't know what she's going to do. Her district is kind of trending away from Democrats. But the lines matter. Mm-hmm. We won't have a map until probably January. I expect some decisions for people like her after that. Uh, Kathy Bernier, a Republican from up the Chippewa Falls Valley area, or Chippewa Falls area, she's kind of been, she hasn't really enjoyed this session a whole lot. I, I guess would I agree. Would <laughs> Every time I talk to her, we get to have some side conversations and so watch, might be inching that way as well. As watching well. her in the assembly, you know, look at the pairs that they had for the map that leaders drew. I mean, when leaders draw a map 
and pair three sets of incumbents, that probably tells you something. They think somebody's going to retire of those. So just something to watch. An interesting note about Thiesfeld, um, he is one of 25 members of the GOP class of 2010 for the Assembly. They came in that wave year. Their first uh, big thing was Act 10. Mm -hmm. That was their introduction to the Assembly. Of those 25, there are only a half dozen left who still might be around after this election because Thiesfeld has announced he's not seeking re-election. Another half dozen include people like Jim Steineke, the Majority Leader, uh, Tyler August, uh, the Speaker Pro Tem. That's a real kind of turnover for a class that was so large as 12 years ago, but things have changed. A long time ago, you came into office and maybe stuck around for a couple of decades. I don't right. think there's the same appetite, especially that class of 2010. It wasn't usually people would go, well, I've, I've done four years or six. I've, I've had enough. I'm, I'm out of here after that. So, mm -hmm. But again, the watch is still on for more retirements before the session's over. And JR's got quite the chart <laughs> yeah. uh, with the facts and the knowledge about who's left. I love it. <laughs> um, and volume this week is GOP education money. Now, this is um, kind of the big debacle right now between Republicans on the Joint Finance Committee and the Department of Public Instruction because... This week, the U.S. Department of Education rejected GOP's proposal that would have invested more federal funds into schools that kept their classrooms open during the pandemic. And you and I both know we kind of had a sense that, the, you know, the federal government was going to be like, we're not going to yeah. do that. So there are three pots of federal, three, uh, three bills passed with pots of money for schools with the federal government. ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, was the third and final one, and also the biggest. Mm -hmm. It had $1.5 billion for Wisconsin schools. Of that, about $1.4 billion was all done through a formula that takes it into consideration poverty. Mm -hmm. So your Milwaukee's, your Beloit's, they benefit the most because of the highest poverty, right? Other remaining pot of money, DPI had a plan I want to be used. Republicans on finance reworked that proposal, and the now disputed $77 million was going to be directed toward schools that were at provided in-person instruction for at least 50% of the year of 2021. There was also priority given to rural small school districts, i.e. ones mostly in Republican areas, right? Mm -hmm. At the time, the Fiscal Bureau said, we can't tell you this is going to match the federal guidance, and, but just you know, it's been constantly evolving, so maybe, but there's some questions here. So the feds say, we're not going to sign off on that. So the question is, now what? Uh, the co-chairs of finance, Mark Bourne, a Republican from the Assembly from Beaver Dam, Howard Markland, Senator from Spring Green, they sent a letter to the DPI Superintendent Jill Ennelly saying, Yesterday. Mm -hmm. you find a plan immediately that matches our legislative intent. Which is very a contrast of the tone that I talked to mm -hmm. Rep. Bourne a few days ago saying, oh, we're going to work with DPI. Yeah. But I think they're just like, well, you got to figure out a plan now because we already gave our own and it was rejected. So, yeah. But yeah. it's time is time is ticking, right? Yeah. Schools want this money. DPI fires back. Yeah. You guys played chicken and yeah. you lost. Now, there's some bluster going on here, but there's also some messaging because for Republicans, their folks are unhappy because they're seeing all this federal money going toward you know, Milwaukee and saying, where's our share, mm -hmm. right? Um, so Republicans thought this is a way to reward their districts because, and that's their word, reward, for going through the, the trials and tribulations of in-person instruction amid a pandemic. Republicans are so unhappy about what's going on. Some like, you know what, heck with it. Reject the money, period. I'd rather it go back to the feds than go to Milwaukee because they got so much. And Milwaukee got a ton of money. A lot of money, in these, a lot. these pots, okay? That's maybe not realistic. But then what do you do to get out of this, right? I mean, do you do something that meets federal approval? Well, that might not reward then those small rural districts that were in-person instruction. How do you craft it? But there's also messaging here where Republicans say, hey, go back and look. Hey, 
we fought for you guys, but Biden and Evers, they're the ones, they're the ones to blame for you not getting the money, right? We fought for you guys, though. Now, for Democrats, they're like, look, these guys messed up. This is their own fault. And oh, by the way, the whole debate about education money in the budget was from Republicans, hey, there is so much federal money that you don't need more state money to increase spending. Mm-hmm. We'll put in state money to lower property taxes, right? That formula. They're saying, look, you guys messed up. You should put more money into the formula to increase spending and help these districts because you didn't. You're the blame. And oh, by the way, Tony Evers has dropped $110 million just gonna bring that up. on school districts through federal money, a different, not ARPA, but a different pot of federal money. That's 134 bucks per kid. Now, it's not a huge amount of money if you're a small district, but still 134 per kid, that's more. And you say, look, whatever these guys say, I did this for you, I delivered. And that's very true. A lot of messaging that we are going to be hearing <laughs> yes. next year in the elections. Well, that will do it for this week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.